Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List podcast for Button Brooks Chapter 2, coming to you from Lake Mulwala. Apologize if there's some background buzzing. It's a billion degrees here, so we've got the aircon on in our little motel room. And um, it was 30, what was it, 36 degrees today, or 38 degrees Celsius, which is very hot. Um, discussion prompts. The housewarming party is warming up. And how far up the aristocratic food chain are the Buddenbrooks exactly? By the way, I'm using a handheld mic today, so if you hear a little bit of microphone noise, I apologize. Swim said the mother, mother fishy says, they are not aristocrats. As the Regency romances say, they are in trade. To put it another way, they belong to the merchant class, the bourgeoisie. Fun fact, while the German nobility was officially abolished in 1919, aristocrats were allowed to keep their castles, as well as their elaborate names, usually punctuated with Freiherr, Baron, and the prepositions von or zu. Today, there are an estimated 70,000 Germans with noble titles. Hagia Moron says, though they are definitely in trade, what a delightfully bitchy expression, there seems to be contradictory feelings in regards to not being aristocrats. For instance, the salt cellars are definitely a trapping of the aristocracy and are indicative of their pretensions to live like the nobility, although by 1835 I imagine the wealth of many bourgeois families had already eclipsed that of the aristocracy. However, the elder Bruddenbrook seems to speak with disdain about the excessive amount that Kroger spent on his gift of a salt and pepper stand, using terms of the aristocracy such as lordly and cavalier to denigrate the ostentation of the peace. The Bruddenbrook boys also seem to symbolise this tension. Although Thomas is praised for his more consistent and pragmatic virtues, he'll have to go in the business. Christian, though a bit of a rascal, is clearly the favourite, why I say at once that he is to be a poet. Thomas represents that bourgeoisie, hard-working business sensibility that defines their class and in their view makes them morally superior to the aristocracy. But Christian the poet, the charming pseudo-aristocrat, is, is who they want to be. Yeah, there's a bit of a weird classism going on. They're all rich. But it's like different types of rich. Um, Techrific says it's a very important distinction. The Novu Riche, according to the aristocracy, new money smells, i.e., the aristocracy pretends that their money is somehow better and purer. It's just one example of how humans delude themselves and create arbitrary distinctions and hierarchies based on imaginary ideas. They're still very much alive today, sadly. This is what time and family mythology can create. The fact that most people in Europe can trace lineage to some noble house at one point or another shows how silly this mind game really is. People are people. End of story. Um, I'm reminded of... um, What's that British show? Um, with the the British aristocrats. Oh shit! What's it called? Um, 
you know, the one where they're all rich and stuff. I have to Google it. It's on the tip of my tongue. Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. There's a season of that where they're all aristocrats and it's on the verge of that going out of favour and not being a thing anymore. And there's a season where a wealthy businessman comes over and uh, from... Wait, am I getting this mixed up with another book we read? <laughs> I might be getting mixed up with The American. The book The American. I think it also happens in Downton Abbey. But anyway, a wealthy businessman comes over to stay with the aristocratic family with all their titles and dukeness or whatever. And um, they're, they're looked down upon like peasants, even though they're filthy rich, richer than them. They're not as uh, well-bred. They're not as posh. So even having the money doesn't really bring you up to their status. Swim said the Mama Fishy has a character list through Chapter 2. We'll go over it again, shall we? Just do this for the first couple of chapters so we can really uh, lock it in. Johan Buddenbrook Sr. is the grandfather. Antoinette Buddenbrook is his wife. Elizabeth Buddenbrook is his daughter. Johan Buddenbrook Jr. is the son. Sorry, the uh, Elizabeth is the daughter-in-law. It's the son's wife. Anthony or Tony is... Uh, the daughter of those two, Christian Tom, are his boys. They're boys. Clothilda, or Thilda, is the daughter of a nephew of Johan Buddenbrook's senior. So that's a bit of a Sonia situation, I imagine. Ida Jungman is the governess. Trina is a servant. Jean, uh, Jean Jacques Hofstede is the poet. And Dr. Grabau is the family physician. They're guests at this housewarming party. Marcellus Stengel and Sigmund Kosterman are not present, but they're mentioned by Christian. Pastor Wunderlich and her Gratkins are guests. Senator Dr. Langhals, his wife, her Coppen wine merchant, they're guests. There's a lot of... Those people are just kind of guests, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, if they're going to be relevant to the story, they'll be brought back into the fold. So I won't go through the rest of the guest list. Gunnaro says... Hey, Gunnaro, haven't heard your name for a while. Welcome back. The party is charming. Can anyone enlighten me on what the doctor is holding in this line? And then rocking his head, he held up a formidable utensil for salt, pepper and mustard. I'm reading the Woods translation, so maybe it's different in another version, but I really want to know what this formidable utensil might be. Ray Jinxing About says, The original is exactly as vague as that translation. Um... Although I took the Jedinjin, or formidable, to mean that whatever he's holding up is of high quality. Yeah, okay, I get that. It's two different, or different ways you can interpret that word, but sometimes formidable can just mean like not to be messed with, or yeah, high quality. It's mentioned explicitly that salt is kept in a container made of massive gold. My guess is that he's holding up a stand of salt, pepper, and mustard dispensers called menage, just refers to the type of stand which could hold anything from salt to oil. Oh, and there's even a picture. Let's have a look. Let's see if I can describe it. Oh, yeah. It's just your basic little table tray for salt and pepper things. Cool. So much status wrapped up in that one little utensil. It's kind of made a big fuss of, isn't it? Let's read the next chapter. It's quite short. Two and a half pages. Chapter three goes like this. 
As the party began to move towards the dining room, Consul Buttonbrook's hand went to his left breast pocket and fingered a paper that was inside. The polite smile had left his face, giving place to a strained and careworn look, and the muscles stood out on his temples as he clenched his teeth. For appearance's sake, he made a few steps towards the dining room, but stopped and sought his mother's eye as she was leaving the room on Pastor Wundlich's arm among the last of her guests. Pardon me, dear Herr Pastor. Just a word with you, Mama. The pastor nodded gaily, and the consul drew his mother over to the window of the landscape room. Here is a letter from Gotthold, he said in a low, rapid tone. He took out the sealed and folded a paper and looked into her dark eyes. That is his writing. It is the third one, and Papa answered only the first. What shall I do? It came at two o'clock, and I ought to have given it to him already, but I do not like to upset him today. What do you think? I could call him out here. No, you are right, Jean. It is better to wait, said Madame Buttonbrook. She grasped her son's arm with a quick habitual movement. What do you suppose is in it? She added uneasily. The boy won't give in. He's taken it into his head. He must be compensated for his share in the house. No, no, Jean. Not now. Tonight, perhaps before we go to bed. What am I to do? repeated the consul, shaking his bent head. I've often wanted to ask Papa to give in. I don't like it to look as if I had schemed against Gotthold or worked myself into a snug place. I don't want Father to look at it like that either. But to be honest, I am a partner after all, and Betsy and I pay fair rent for the second story. It is all arranged with my sister in Frankfurt. Her husband gets compensation already in Papa's lifetime. In Papa's lifetime, a quarter of the purchase price of the house. That is good business. Papa arranged it very cleverly, and it is very satisfactory from the point of view of the firm, and if Papa acts so unfriendly to Gotthold. Nonsense, Jean. Your position in the matter is quite clear, but it is painful for me to have Gotthold think that his stepmother looks out after her own children and deliberately makes bad blood between him and his father. But it is his own fault, the consul almost shouted, and then, with a glance at the dining-room door, lowered his voice. It is his fault. The whole wretched thing. You can judge for yourself. Why couldn't he be reasonable? Why did he have to go and marry the Stewing girl and the shop? The consul gave an angry, embarrassed laugh at the last word. It's a weakness of father's that prejudice against the shop, but Gotthold ought to have respected it. Oh, Jean, it would be best if Papa would give in. But I... But ought I to advise him to? whispered the consul, excitedly clapping his hand to his forehead. I am an interested party, so I ought to say, pay it. But I am also a partner, and if Papa thinks he is under no obligation to be disobedient and rebellious son to draw the money out of the working capital of the firm, it is a matter of 11,000 thaler, a good bit of money. No, no, I cannot advise him either for or against. I'd rather wash my hands of the whole affair, but the scene with Papa is so desagreeable. Late this evening, Jean. Come now, they are waiting. The consul put the paper back into his breast pocket, offered his arm to his mother and led her over the threshold into the brightly lighted dining room where the company had already taken their places at the long table. The tapestries in this room had a sky-blue background, against which between slender columns white figures of gods and goddesses stood out with plastic effect 
The heavy red damask window curtains were drawn, stiff, massive sofas in red damask stood ranged against the walls, and in each corner stood a tall gilt candle broom with eight flaming candles beside those in silver sconces on the table. Above the heavy sideboard on the wall opposite the landscape room hung a large painting of an Italian bay, the misty blue atmosphere of which was most effective in the candlelight. Every trace of care or disquiet had vanished from Madame Buttonbrooks's face. She sat down between Pastor Wunderich and the older Kroger, who presided on the quick on the window side. Bon appetit, she said, with a short, quick, hearty nod, flashing a glance down the whole length of the table till it reached the children at the bottom. All right, there we go. That's a chapter. <clears throat> chapter three, to be exact. Uh... So some kind of business deal between the father and the son, or something to do with the business. Um, I'll be seeking clarity on that before we start chapter four. Did that go over anyone else's head a little bit, or did I miss something? Either way, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.